Hey guys, I'm Avni. And I'm Diva. And welcome back to Positionality, where today we're going to be talking about a conflict that most of you have probably heard of. If you've been anywhere on the internet and reading any of the news, you've probably heard of this rising tension between the Ukraine and Russia in the last few months. It seems that a lot of countries, such as the US, are becoming increasingly involved in this relationship. I mean, at the time of recording, February 5th, we recently learned that the US stationed troops in Poland, and just yesterday they sent troops all the way over to Germany in order to help with this conflict. Now, they're not the only ones who have been sending troops to the Ukraine border. A lot of other countries like France, Denmark, and Spain have also sent weapons as well as other troops to countries in Eastern Europe surrounding Ukraine. And the reason they've been doing that is in retaliation to the troops that Russia has been placing on the Ukrainian border for the past couple of months. In October of 2021, Russia first began moving these troops and military equipment to this border. And they continued doing that until about mid-December, where at this point, there's around 100,000 troops at the border. Now, the Russian ministry at the time set, issued this set of demands where they wanted the Ukraine to not join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which we more commonly known as NATO. They wanted a reduction of NATO troops and military equipment in Eastern Europe so that military forces would be withdrawn. The US and the majority of other NATO members immediately rejected these demands because, for one, Ukraine is its own sovereign country and should be able to decide whether it wants to join NATO or not, and also because they don't want Russia to invade. And at this point, though the Kremlin denies that they are planning to attack, it does seem like they could possibly invade. Many US officials as well as other NATO members have said that an invasion could happen within the next month or two. This type of extreme and dramatic tension doesn't just simmer in three months. So I think it's really important to look at the deep history of why exactly this conflict first came about and what each country sort of views this conflict. So I think to kind of understand the context behind this conflict, we need to understand first how Russia has viewed Ukraine in past years. In the USSR, Ukraine was actually one of the biggest parts of it. It was the second largest part of the USSR behind Russia, and Ukraine was actually known as Little Russia. Because of that, Russia has never really acknowledged Ukraine's sovereignty as a separate nation. In 2008, Putin's spokesperson basically said that Ukraine is not a state, and in a recent article, Putin also said once again that Russians and Ukrainians are one people, a single whole. So in their mind, Ukraine has always been a part of Russia. I mean, we see that even with more, I guess, recent history. I mean, this conflict started in 2013 when Ukrainian president rejected the deal to join the European Union. This, of course, caused a bunch of protests because everyone in Ukraine wanted to, well, not everyone, but most people wanted to separate themselves from Russia and thereby join the EU. So this actually caused the president of Ukraine to flee. Russia ended up taking control over Crimea, which was originally a part of Ukraine, in 2014 before formally annexing the territory. Now, originally there were lots of protests in the area, but people in Crimea voted to join the Russian Federation in a local referendum. After that, Russian troops just went in to take control and take care of all of it. So there is truly, it's really questionable whether it was actually by choice or whether it was more something that was forced upon Crimea by Russia. 
Now, even though Crimea was annexed, which was the area where the most protests were happening, violence still continued in a lot of the eastern parts of Ukraine, between both Russia and Ukraine, especially in regards to the pro-Russia separatists in that sort of eastern region. So because of that, Putin has decided to sign a peace deal with Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, in Minsk. So it's known as the Minsk ceasefire violation, and this was signed in around 2015. Since then, Ukraine has been the target of a number of cyber attacks by Russia, with more than 225,000 people losing power in 2015, another blackout following in 2016, and then government and business computer systems also being attacked in 2017. All of these amounted to billions of dollars in damages. So clearly, Russia wasn't necessarily following the ceasefire agreement. But at the same time, they claim that Ukraine has been stirring up tensions in the country's east and has also violated the Minsk ceasefire agreement. Actually, some countries have, or some world leaders have noted this, and I don't know if you've read some of the articles about like Canada, but both President Trudeau as well as President Biden have warned Ukraine that Russia might be sort of setting up some false flag operations where they give off the impression that Russia is doing things without actually being aggressive so that Ukraine will attack first and then Russia will have actual motivation to go in and like attack them. While there's definitely been a lot of hypocrisy on Russia's end, at the same time, we can still sort of understand their perspective. Growing support for Ukraine from NATO essentially becomes a threat to their own security. It almost seems as if NATO is trying to take more and more control over the European countries. And if so, from Russia's perspective, it almost seems as if Ukraine is one domino out of many other countries that could turn against Russia and isolate them. They actually wanted legal agreements to be put in place to prevent NATO from expanding their power eastward. But it seems that NATO hasn't actually lived up to their previous assurances that it wouldn't. It's why it wants power over Ukraine because otherwise Russia's claim to sovereignty and power essentially becomes extremely insecure. Russia views the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO as a threat to its own security. Historically, NATO was originally made to oppose the USSR and communism as a whole. In retaliation to that, the USSR formed the Warsaw Pact. However, that was dissolved years ago. So now there really is no other sort of pact or other member organization that can stand in opposition to NATO, meaning that Russia could easily be outnumbered if NATO continues to expand eastward. The remnants of this sort of Cold War ideology continue to persist today. From Russia's perspective, they say that the US is purposefully trying to draw Russia into war with the Ukraine so that they are able to impose more sanctions on Russia which would cause Russia to diminish as an economic power, thereby amplifying the fact that US's capitalistic ideals are more victorious or more prominent and prevalent in the world, as opposed to Russia's communist ideals. And Russia's not the only one who's called out the US and NATO on sort of reverting back to the ideological approaches of the Cold War. Just around a week ago, Putin actually met with China's President Xi Jinping and they discussed wanting to oppose further NATO ex expansion. And China basically issued a statement with Russia where they called on NATO to stop expanding eastward and abandon again the once outdated ideologies of the Cold War. While Russia's perspective is somewhat understandable, they're still not the only country or party involved in this conflict. Ukraine, of course, has their own perspective on this entire issue. 
Because it's a sovereign state, they believe that Russia can't prevent it from joining NATO because they need to be able to exercise their own internal and external sovereignty. Ukraine also believes that Russia is trying to destabilize the country ever since the president of Ukraine said that there was a plot to start a Russian coup. This plot and this fear of destabilization is especially concerning when you consider how Zelensky's government, the president of Ukraine, has been facing a lot of challenges on domestic fronts anyways. The government's popularity in general has stagnated recently, especially in regards to the recent third wave of COVID-19 infections and just a generally struggling economy. Furthermore, the government hasn't ended any conflict in the East with Russian separatists, which make it even more dire for the government and just overall terrible for the citizens. Now, of course, we know that there's been a wide international response to this escalating conflict. NATO, for example, is pretty much all in agreement that if Russia does invade Ukraine, they will retaliate. But the issue is they're not really sure what they'll do. They don't really have any sort of joint action planned at the moment. But each country is sort of doing their own thing. The UK has sent military aid and personnel to Ukraine. Denmark, Spain, and France have all sent weapons. And Germany denied their request for military weapons and stuff because of their own policies to remain neutral. So they've only sent helmets and medical aid, but that's still really helpful. One of the countries that's been especially participatory in this sort of conflict is definitely the US. President Joe Biden spoke actually with President Zelensky earlier this month, and he basically responded saying that if Russia were to invade Ukraine, that the US would immediately respond decisively. At the same time though, only days after, Biden kind of seemed to undermine the message when he suggested that if there were sort of a, ma a minor incursion rather than a full-on invasion, that it might elicit a lesser response. Now, just thinking about this in general, the idea of distinguishing between a full invasion and a minor incursion just seems to sort of encourage Putin to invade, but just slowly. <laughs> it doesn't really lend much confidence for Ukraine in terms of actually expecting a decisive retaliation. Rather, it just allows Russia to just be slower, but still do the same thing. It kind of gives off the impression that the US isn't really willing to make as decisive of an action or reaction as they have previously said. At the same time though, the Defense Department has developed military options for Biden if he were to decide to increase capabilities in Eastern Europe. But again, there is no sort of decisive answer about what the US or really any other NATO member actually plans to do if Russia does decide to invade. So I think that if you're avid news readers or podcast listeners like we are, you've probably heard at least a little bit about these perspectives, or if you're an avid US history buff, you might be able to contextualize a little bit this sort of conflict between capitalism and communism, and why NATO and Russia are at each other's throats, as they have always been historically. I think we should just talk about things that we personally find really interesting about the conflict. To be honest, they most pertain to Russia and what they stand to gain from Ukraine. One of the most interesting factors that I think contribute to this sort of conflict, especially in regards to the economic front, is about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Okay, I'm just gonna stop you there. There is a second one. How uncreative could you be with a name in order to have Nord Stream Pipeline 2? Yeah, as you might guess, this is the second pipeline. 
<laughs> so Nord Stream 1 pipeline was made years ago and is also owned by Russia and is pretty significant in terms of giving gas and being able to distribute that throughout Europe in general. And that's why Russia has proposed this other project, Nord Stream 2, in order to further distribute more gas into Europe. Now, the pipeline itself is a multi-billion dollar project that has been worked on for the past couple of months, but is pretty significant when it comes to this conflict. Now, Ukraine at first was pretty hesitant about allowing this pipeline to be constructed. In addition to both Nord Stream pipelines, which both of these run through the Baltic Sea, there also is a more traditional land-based network of pipelines, which also, once again, distribute gas throughout Europe. These pipelines actually go through Ukraine. And because of that, Ukraine actually gets a lot of money because, of course, Russia has to pay to run these pipelines through that country. If Nord Stream 2 was to be made, Ukraine would be getting no money from this. So, of course, they were initially in opposition. However, Kyiv now views the pipeline across Ukraine as an element of protection against an invasion by Russia. Because, of course, Russia has a huge economic stake in this pipeline being constructed. And if they were to invade Ukraine, of course, all of these countries would immediately oppose the construction of this pipeline. Nord Stream 2 in general will increase European dependence on Russian gas basically tenfold and could allow Moscow to selectively target countries such as Ukraine with energy cutoffs. So this pipeline is a lot more important on the geo geopolitical stage than might be expected. I think it was really interesting that you brought up this idea of how this project that encourages economic development in Russia but takes away economic development in Ukraine might actually promote negative peace in Ukraine. And it's almost as if they have to make the decision between having the lack of conflict and therefore negative peace versus actually being able to grow as a country. Because it almost seems that Ukraine is constantly in a lose-lose situation. This situation goes beyond just Ukraine. And the thing that I found most interesting about this entire conflict was actually the prevalence or the importance of the Black Sea to it. With a Russian takeover of Ukraine, there would be a transformation of the Black Sea and it would basically just become a Russian lake. This would increase pressure on Turkey, which is somehow extremely economically related to the Black Sea because the Black Sea is a very important trade route for many, many Mediterranean countries. Considering that Russia and Turkey have a long-standing rivalry, considering that Turkey is also a NATO ally, increasing pressure on Turkey would mean that Russia would continue to win while killing two birds with one stone, both NATO and Turkey, and the Ukraine. The Black Sea is also really important to Russia, as it could project Russian power and influence in the Mediterranean. It could also protect its economic and trade links with key European markets and make Southern Europe more dependent on Russian gas and oil, especially because that trade route is now owned by Russia. At the same time, they sort of see this body of water as an important security buffer zone because there's going to be a lot of potential for instability to flow through the Middle East. So it would obviously protect it from that volatility that could emanate further south. Moscow sees the Mediterranean as largely NATO dominated, but it hopes to spot opportunities to make political, economic, and military inroads with key regional states as it has done in Syria. It also eyes opportunities to expand its influence in Mediterranean countries like Cyprus, Egypt, Israel, Libya, and Turkey. By doing so, they sort of combat NATO's continuing 
sort of expanding dominance over European countries, and thereby are able to fight back in some way, shape, or form. I think a lot of the times when we think about hard power on the geopolitical stage, the first thing that comes to our minds is often military power. But in conflicts like this, while military power is definitely the first thing that is talked about in the media, stuff like the Nord Stream pipeline and the Black Sea conflict are just as important in terms of establishing economic influence in a conflict as complicated as this. Ultimately, I think it's really important to recognize the fact that this conflict is basically a modern-day Cold War. This conflict isn't really between Russia and Ukraine. If you've listened to this episode, you probably noticed that when we discussed the Ukrainian perspective, it was probably a solid three sentences. Because Ukraine doesn't really have as much power, even though this is probably most relevant to their own political ideology and political affiliations. In the end, Ukraine is one of many countries throughout history that are in this ever-evolving proxy war between capitalism, as supported by the US and other NATO allies, and communism, which is most dominantly perpetuated by Russia. Throughout history, we've seen smaller countries like Ukraine become in somehow involved in these conflicts between larger countries like usually the US and Russia, and have sort of been the ones who have lost in all of these situations. In this case, they're getting some support from NATO, but since they're not a full member, they don't get the full support. And Russia obviously wants to possibly invade them. So regardless of what happens, it's not going to be Ukraine that ends up in the positive. It's going to be either Russia or US because they're of their incredibly large political influence. It seems that these sort of proxy wars for more power regarding capitalism or communism just end up hurting innocent people or innocent states who really had no stake in the conflict to begin with. The extent to which volatility has been shown throughout this specific situation it seems that more and more people will continue getting hurt if we don't de-escalate the conflict. Right now, estimates are saying that hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of Ukrainians could get hurt or be forced to flee. But when it comes to estimates regarding Russia's people and US citizens, those numbers aren't nearly as high. At the end of the day, it's going to be the countries that get stuck in between that are the ones that lose the most. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. If you liked it, make sure to follow us on Spotify, rate it on Apple Podcasts, or leave us a like or comment if you're on YouTube. If you'd like to continue that conversation, be sure to follow us on our Instagram at positionalitymedia, or email us at positionalitymedia at gmail.com, or even leave us a listener message. Other than that, make sure to tune in next time for another episode.